You may have noticed the last time you were booking a domestic or international flight online that there was an additional step in the booking process. More and more airlines today are giving you the option to offset the carbon cost of your flight, which is where, for an additional fee, you can pay into an offset project that renders your flight carbon neutral. In principle, it seems like a decent idea, considering back in 2015 we spewed 781 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere from air travel alone. So, in some way, it's making people more conscious of the carbon cost of their flight. However, some aren't so convinced, arguing that it actually does little to reconsider your footprint back on the ground, and that some offsetting projects like the replantation of trees. Aren't environmentally viable, but there's another concern here, and that's that people have noted the use of the word offsetting, typically thought of in an economics capacity, and the fact that offsetting doesn't necessarily compute when you're talking about the environment. Today on the show, you'll learn why the environment doesn't necessarily understand dollars and cents, and also. How the use of environmental offsetting is going way beyond putting a price on the footprint of your international flight. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Last August, Australia saw a massive legislative rewrite come into effect. This rewrite concerned one of the biggest environmental issues in the country: land clearing. This new regime probably started about four years ago. The New South Wales government signed an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, so an agreement with the New South Wales Farmers Association. That's Daisy Barham from the Nature Conservation Council. And why co-signed by the New South Wales Farmers Association for an emphasis on agriculture? Yeah, so a main driver of land clearing is to clear land for either growing crops or for grazing. And according to Daisy, bringing in these new laws was to essentially gut the laws that we had. The big agri businesses really wanted a change to the laws to make it easier for them to, you know, clear large areas of New South Wales to grow crops or run cows in a grazing operation. These two pieces of legislation passed last year. One is called the Biodiversity Conservation Act, and the second is called the Local Land Services Amendment Act. So, yeah, the land clearing laws included a new central element when it comes to land clearing, something known as biodiversity offsetting. Biodiversity offsetting. What exactly does it mean? I'm familiar with something like carbon offsetting, which, at the most basic level possible, you're on a flight, you can tick a box to say, "I'm going to offset the carbon cost of my flight." Is it kind of in parallel to biodiversity offsetting? The concept is very similar. That's Lee Martin from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. The concept of biodiversity offsets is that where a development or an activity is going to have Negative impacts on biodiversity; uh, those impacts can be offset by protecting species, habitat, ecosystems that otherwise would not have been protected elsewhere. 
Light carbon offsetting. Some see it. I think is a bit of a crazy idea. The basic premise is: if you have two bits of healthy habitat, you should be able to clear one of those in exchange for protecting the other one. Which you know might sort of make sense on paper, maybe. But the reality is, is that you know we had two bits of beautiful bushland or forest, and now we only have one. Why do you see biodiversity offsetting as a good idea, just kind of at the root of the practice?、Uh, well, the first step should always be avoiding impact if possible. But realistically, there will always be cases where a development needs to occur for various reasons of public benefit, and an impact is going to occur. If that's the case, for biodiversity offsetting to work, and it is a potentially very useful tool, there are a number of principles that have to be adhered to. The first is there needs to be either no net loss or even a gain in biodiversity as a result of the offsets. This is sometimes called neutral beneficial test. There's various names, all amount to the same thing. How do we get down to such nitty and gritty that we know there'll be no net loss because of that?、Mm, great question. For instance, there's plant community types. So ecologists have worked out. How many different plant communities there are in New South Wales? So that's one way that you could decide. Well, okay, if X landholder wants to, you know, bulldoze certain type of plant community, they have to be able to find the same plant community、um, to use as an offset. Another principle that is very important is so-called like-for-like test, and that is that an impact on one type of habitat or ecosystem. Needs to be offset by something that is equivalent, the same type of habitat or ecosystem, and it also should be located in roughly the same geographic area or biogeographic area, if you like. Let's say we chop down a beautiful wet rainforest and we replace it with a woodland. I love woodlands, but they're not the same. Another key principle is that of additionality. It has to be a genuine offset. You can't offset a biodiversity impact. By protecting something that was under no threat of being lost, so you can't say, "Well, there's a national park over there which offsets the impact." That's not additional; it was already protected. Under these new land clearing laws, the way in which we determine areas of land to offset to was also tweaked in August of last year to become the biodiversity assessment methodology. That's replacing what used to be called the environmental outcome assessment methodology. And although Lee sees biodiversity offsetting as a feasible yet imperfect idea if enacted correctly, he argues the biodiversity assessment methodology is less stringent than the previous environmental outcomes assessment methodology. And what we've seen in New South Wales is there's gaming of the system, and the rules have been tinkered with. To allow offsets to become a means for facilitating developments that otherwise could not have occurred. The New South Wales major projects offset policy has a number of workarounds. The first of those is that the like-for-like test is relaxed, so an offset can be unlike, if you wish.、Um, it's sometimes joked as being like-for-like-ish. But even that, I think, is probably stretching the definition a little. Or even if no equivalent offset can be found, there's no, there are other workarounds which include supplementary measures. Supplementary measures can include things like mine site rehabilitation, that's actually been used as an offset, 
Really? Eve, yes. And obviously, rehabilitating a mine site should not be used as an offset. That should be an obligation on the mining company as a result of, as part of their conditions of consent. Mine sites, if you've ever seen them, are usually pretty ugly places, often really quite toxic and heavily, heavily degraded. You know, usually the land has been bulldozed, it's been burnt, the topsoil's been taken away, it's been mined for years. And yet now the government is saying that, well, but if you rehabilitate it, then you should be able to use that as an offset. That is just an absolutely outrageous uh, suggestion. Currently in Australia, there are no standards as to how a mine site should be rehabilitated. But there are some shocking examples of really bad rehabilitation, where effectively the company uh, more or less walks away, leaves you know toxic chemicals uh, in the ground, has huge impacts on groundwater for you know neighbouring communities that might rely on the groundwater, and it leaves the landscape for the neighbouring community as a wasteland um, for probably generations. So, you know, it's kind of adding extra salt to the wound from the New South Wales government to tell the community that massive mining companies can get extra profit by rehabilitating their land, which then justifies bulldozing somewhere else. It's crazy. Although all these changes have come into effect, we don't know where or when these future developments will happen. I would love to be able to tell you exactly what's happened, but the reality is, is that we simply don't know. The government doesn't publish data about how much land has been cleared for at least about three years after it happened. So at you know current rates, we're going to have to wait another two and a half, three years to find out what's happening now. So that's really concerning to us. Daisy has been looking to satellite data to map out what certain bushlands of New South Wales looked like a year ago compared to today, and can visibly see areas that were once full of forests and bush have been stripped bare. Coming up next, why is Australia still so fond of land clearing, when it seems other developed countries have already moved on? You know, Australia is pretty unique in the fact that we're still talking about clearing lands. The phenomena of urban sprawl into bushland on the edges of cities and into salad bowls around cities is something that most developed countries in the world aren't doing. In New South Wales, only 9% of our land is in a near-natural condition. The rest has been developed on, repurposed, built up or completely scrapped. But developers continue to clear and push on. However, Australia's relationship with land clearing, according to Simon Kilbane, landscape architect from the University of Technology, Sydney, goes deeper than just a hunt for space and resources. I think it's packaged together with the fact that we're an immigrant nation, which is focused on the idea that everyone gets a piece of dirt to build a house on. Um, the Australian dream, which is really just the American dream, repackaged. But it's certainly something that I think is cultural as well. I mean, look at our tax system, you know, negative gearing, housing. You know, the whole, the whole machine of Australia is about land and it's about selling land and making money. You know, 1788, they planted a flag and hocked the land off to the settlers, you know, and made money out of, out of nothing. 
But Daisy Byram from the Nature Conservation Council sees this idea of land purely as money as a flawed one, and not just land. People always struggle to put a price on nature, and that's because we can't. Nature is our life support system. We are part of nature, and we can't remove ourselves from it. And so biodiversity offsetting, yeah, tries to boil down what is incredibly complex and is absolutely essential to our survival down to a monetary value. However, jumping back to Lee Martin from UTS, this is exactly what the new scheme is doing, where another of these supplementary measures for biodiversity offsetting involves... Paying into what's called a biodiversity fund. So these are cash offsets, which can then be used to purchase land or fund other measures such as research into threatened species, which supposedly would offset the impact that otherwise could not be offset. Paying into a cash offset was possible before the laws were changed back in August. But Lee says the types of projects eligible for cash offsetting has expanded. Under the new Biodiversity Conservation Act, the principles will now be extended across the board to offsetting in New South Wales. So what we've seen is a significant weakening of the way biodiversity offsets are used in New South Wales. I think that is really a really poor way of approaching the offsets policy. That's clearly about providing workarounds. Funneling offset money into funds, rehabilitating old mine sites. With these supplementary measures, there's a concern that as more workarounds are introduced, less and less actual forest and bushland will be conserved. Or that previously protected land will be opened up for development. Yes, there is the risk that you could end up in a cycle of offsetting the offset. So something that has been used as an offset and protected could potentially later be developed. So there is certainly that risk that offsets may not be protected in perpetuity. Even uh, even a national park is not necessarily protected in perpetuity. Uh, a national park, it would be very difficult to do, but a national park could be degazetted. Uh, the government of the day could actually take areas that are national park, uh, pass legislation which makes them no longer a national park. It's a very difficult thing to do. A national park is a high level of protection, but a government in New South Wales or any other state has in its power to remove areas from the national park estate if it chooses to do so. If we continue to sprawl further and further out, yeah. will it get to a point where we've just developed so far that there are no areas that resemble a like-likeness? Yeah. Uh, look, look, absolutely. Um, I think a good example is in Melbourne. One of the most threatened uh, ecological communities there is, is a grassland. It's a native grassland. And it also coincides very nicely with the expansion of Melbourne to the, to the southwest. So in that instance, where these particular grassland species assemblages occur... It's a finite resource, exactly as you say. Um, it becomes a, a game of, well, do we have you know affordable housing at the fringe of a city or do we retain a landscape that has value but actually the, the potential residents of the area, they might not understand those values. They might not understand that this is a nationally vulnerable or critically threatened um, ecological system. They might not even like it, the fact that it's sort of scrappy sort of grass that's overgrown <laughs> that needs to be burnt periodically. Australia has long looked to the US and UK for a whole matter of things, including agricultural practice, colonisation of the landscape. But in doing that, 
we've bypassed something of massive importance: the natural order of the land. And as Simon just mentioned, we've overlooked things like particular species, both flora and fauna, having evolved with the landscape, with natural fires being a huge part of that. Unfortunately, you know, big bad moves in the past. Idea of Terra Nullius. We never really learnt from what the indigenous people of this nation were were doing, how that landscape was managed. Um, and of course, when we've removed those things, it's just hopelessly complex. <laughs> it's just so complex to.、Uh, To try and manage those landscapes. Do you think we'll ever pull ourselves out of this, you know, mindset? Absolutely. Yeah, we have to. Yeah, I think that the dramas that will unfold shortly, or you know, have been sort of ramping up in terms of climate change,、um, are going to become even more urgent and apparent. But even without that, I think we've reached the end of our straw with with wanting to deal with things like air pollution, with not having a quality of life. That involves、uh, simple things like trees and sniffing the flowers.、Um. <laughs> so it's this kind of like centuries-long ingrained ideology、yeah. of our relationship to a land, yeah, and a relationship that's somewhat incompatible. <laughs> it's very incompatible. I mean, why, why do we? It's going to sound like landscape gardening, but why, why do we plant roses in our in our gardens, not waratahs? You know, you can buy them. I saw them at Bunnings. Mm. And way more expensive than roses. I mean, maybe that's the problem. But you know, we need to understand that we don't live somewhere else. I think Australia has this this kind of kind of cringe, still cultural cringe.、Um, you know, we're always looking overseas. We're always looking elsewhere. But you know, what Australia has in terms of its ecological values is is really amazing. It's also the reason most tourists come here. Believe it or not, they don't all come here for the Harbour Bridge. And, The Opera House, Australia's value for overseas tourists is in its landscape, it's in the outback, it's in seeing the fauna and flora. So these things should be celebrated. We should be we should be valuing them far more. It seems somewhat like an incompatible system to say that if we're developing in one area, let's put a value on another one, well, as a means to protect it. To draw that line, I feel like is in the same way as if we have a disastrous oil spill and we have all this ecological disturbance in one area, and we're trying to compensate financially for those losses. Can this idea of development and offsetting? Is it so compatible that it can be in the best interest of the environment? Well, I think biodiversity offsetting is a tool, but it should not be the only tool. The key tool for protecting biodiversity is protecting habitat. The rules that everyone has to adhere to about development consent are designed to take into account environmental, social, and economic factors before an approval is granted. That's fine. But I would argue that we've got the balance wrong in New South Wales at the moment, and our rules are designed to facilitate development, and the environment is, I guess, given an inappropriate level of consideration in that process. That's it for today. If you enjoyed the show and are not already, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You just have to search for Think Sustainability. 
We also have a website. Jump on there, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability for more info about the show. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>